to save suicide awareness and voices of education, who uses the most recent data available from the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization, they have completed the following list of suicide facts. Number one, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. for all ages. Number two, every day approximately 123 Americans die by suicide. Number three, There is one death by suicide in the U.S. every 12 minutes. Number four, depression affects 20 to 25% of Americans 18 or older in a given year. Number five, suicide takes the lives of over 44,965 Americans every year. And the good news, 80 to 90% of people that seek treatment for depression are treated successfully using therapy and or medications. Welcome back to the Love Your Story podcast. Today, I have a suicide panel put together for you that is just top-notch. Every human soul is precious, and we all know that space of feeling disconnected, of being frustrated that life or relationships or career didn't turn out as we expected. I'm sure at one time or another, we all have felt alienated. And it's when those feelings of disconnection and alienation combine with the hopelessness that things aren't ever going to change, that suicide becomes an all-too-familiar option. What is the cause of so much hopelessness right now in our culture? Why is suicide so prevalent now that the word epidemic has been used to describe it? What is the cause and what is the solution? Today, I have an amazing panel put together on the topic of suicide. These men and women have personal experience with suicide, either with family members or in Seth's case, his own personal experience. And they speak publicly. They work with people as therapists. They all have books and spaces where they are out there talking about this topic. I have put this panel together. We have put this panel together because we care. Because suicide as a supposed solution is out of control. And we as a community need to find answers. We need to reduce shame around the discussion. And we need to shine a light of hope. Let me introduce the panel members and we'll see if we can answer any of these questions that we've posed, gain some insight, and maybe even create some hope in those of you that are listening. are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Okay, first on my board is Cherie Burton. Cherie has a degree in psychology and sociology and has worked as a group counselor at a psychiatric hospital, an addiction recovery center, and a behavioral facility for teen boys. She has stepped away from clinical work to inspire women worldwide to reach their full potential through books and workshops and retreats. 
Her work as an author, a podcaster, an international business owner, speaker, mom of five, emotional release facilitator, and leadership development trainer has helped thousands of women magnify their gifts and find wholeness. Cherie's sister took her own life, and this has affected Cherie's work. Welcome, Cherie. Thanks, Laurie. I'm glad to be on. The second panel member is Gainalyn Condi. Gainalyn is a popular motivational speaker known for inspiring others with her unique honesty, authenticity, and spirit. She is dedicated to her family, her faith, and inspiring others. Gainalyn loves teaching others with speaking and writing, and she's experienced healing from a major chronic illness and is the mother of two miracle children. After the heartbreaking suicide of her 40-year-old sister, Gainalyn is constantly working toward prevention. She lives with an open heart and feels passionate about sharing principles that will empower others to live life with more joy. She's a regular television and radio guest, and she speaks, and her books have now encouraged thousands of people all over the world. She loves growing older with her cute husband, Rob, and aims to keep learning and loving. Welcome, Gainalyn. Thanks for that introduction. I laugh every single time and I know what it says. So thank you. (laughs) You guys are all so cool. The introductions are longer than the whole podcast. (laughs) Megan Cook Johnson is the third panel member. Megan Johnson received a master's degree in social work from BYU in 2008. She's been a therapist at LDS Family Services for 10 years, where her focus has been treating depression and anxiety. She has recently been trained in hypnotherapy and is working on starting a private practice. Megan is the co-founder of the Emily Effect Foundation, an organization that honors her late sister, Emily, and seeks to raise awareness and improve resources for those experiencing postpartum mood disorders. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Seth, our male representative here is last but not least. Seth Adam Smith is a best-selling, award-winning author and blogger whose writings have been translated into over 30 languages and featured on the Huffington Post, Good Morning America, Fox News, CNN, The Today Show, Forbes, and many other news outlets around the world. In 2015, his book, Your Life Isn't For You, was awarded a gold medal for inspirational memoir. A survivor of his own suicide attempt in 2006, Seth has become an advocate for resources and understanding concerning depression and suicide prevention, and he regularly writes about these topics in his books and on his blog. He and his family currently live in Arizona. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be a male representative. (laughs) We need those. Okay, the way the panel is going to work is that I will ask each of you to share the part of your story of why suicide has become something that's an important part of your awareness, an important part of your platform, something that you speak out on. Then I'm going to ask a series of questions, and then I will specifically ask two of you to answer each question. That way we don't end up talking over each other, and then we'll move on to the next question. So let's start in the same order that we went. Cherie, tell us a little about your story and why suicide is a topic that is of concern to you. I'm grateful to be here and be able to give more of a voice for those who suffer in silence and in secret, because that's truly what suicide is about. Suicidality is a process. You don't darken in a day and neither does your life circumstances or body. It's a process. Mm 
personally, my first experience with suicide was I was getting ready to serve a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And my aunt, age 32, committed suicide. She actually wrote a letter and asked that my parents raise her three-year-old son. And so he was adopted as the seventh child in our family, making it now that I have the Brady Bunch on either side. I have three brothers and three sisters. And I'm the second oldest. And of the seven children um, in the family that I grew up in, Myself and one other sibling are the only two that were not diagnosed with a major mental illness. I actually have two sisters and two brothers diagnosed bipolar. The two siblings not diagnosed bipolar struggle with addiction and severe clinical depression. And the thing is, you know, I, I don't think that I dodged a genetic bullet. We can get to that later. I believe there were some really interesting junctures in the road for me, if you will, that lended themselves to my getting a lot of healing solutions and answers. But... Unfortunately, a little too late for my sister, who at the age of 34 took her life and left behind five children. And this is a, a woman who I was very close to. She, we, our children were the same ages. We saw each other every day. And she was very gifted musically. She ran a music school out of her home. She was very active in church. She was a beautiful mother and also diagnosed bipolar and struggled with prescription drug addiction because of a chronic pain from a back, from a spinal fusion. So I saw this happening in my backyard. I saw her demise, if you will. It was this slow process, but ultimately what it did was it jolted an awakening within our family structure where we said, this will not happen anymore. And I happened to be Mrs. Utah at the time of her death. Uh, It was three weeks before I was to pass on my title So it kind of took on more of a public notice or a public role. So I was asked to sit on the State Suicide Prevention Council with Mark Shirtliff, who was Utah's Attorney General at that time. And we formed a think tank with professors and sociologists and psychiatrists and educators. And we came together and how do we stop this from happening? And Lori, that was 14 years ago. And the suicide problem is not any better. And I don't say that with, uh, I say that very respectfully. I don't think that we're really hitting the middle of this. And so I'm glad you're having this panel because this is definitely something that continues to keep showing up in my life. So I think that is a really interesting comment because I know Mark Shirtliff. He was on the podcast earlier this year, well, 2018. And, you know, he's a wonderful person also, you know, powerful, somebody who can get things done. I'm sure that that was a very powerful think tank that came together to do this. And obviously, there's a lot of concern about it within the culture, within the communities. And the more it escalates, you know, the more concerned people get, just like me as a podcast host going, this is a really big deal. What how do we get to the bottom of this? How do we start making a difference? How do we stem this tide? And I don't know what the answers are, which is why I have you for on the podcast. So maybe we can banter it around and say, what might the answers I, be? Yeah. And I'm happy to speak to that after the others have had their say, but I have some deep feelings around it. I have some deep convictions around healing. Yeah. Great. Let's go there when we get there. Gaina Lynn, can you tell us your background? Yes, I have a minor degree in psychology and a major in education. And I grew up in a home where there was a mental illness dynamic going on. I had the blessing and opportunity to be the oldest in the family. And 
I had a time where my mom was a single mother of myself and my sister. And I watched unfold from a very young age, the dynamics of mental illness in our home. And I think somewhere along that path, I something switched in my brain. And it was the idea that somehow I could fix something. <laughs> if I loved everyone around me perfectly, and I acted perfectly. And I, you know, there was a sense from a very, very young age, how fragile my family dynamic was and, and mental health in general. It was not always a peaceful place to be. And fast forward a few years, we were, my mom was no longer a single mom and she had remarried and had a number of other children. And we had lost my little sister, Bonnie, I was 10 and she was two. So we'd gone through that grief and I had watched my mother do the very best she could with what she had. And she always was trying, but I also could see that my sister Meg was starting to unravel. And a lot of that was chalked up to teenage life stuff. And looking back, that, that wasn't, it was the slow burn, as Shri mentioned. And we found out she had been sexually abused previously and dealt with some learning disabilities and some depression and anxiety. And so that started this trajectory in my own life where I really wanted to gain knowledge and help because I could see people I love around me struggling. And there was always a threat of suicide in the home, not no not specifically with my sister, but often with my mom. And not a lot of people know that I speak a lot. I'm very public about this part of my life, but I've only touched gently on my mom's journey because it's her journey to talk about. And then as my sister grew older, I went away to college and that was her first official attempt, so to speak, and she was hospitalized. Then there were a series of years where she would do really well. And then I call it the pit. She would fall into the pit for a period of time and she would not do well. As time went on, my family started to be formed with my husband, and I graduated college and was dealing with some chronic illness and some raising my own family, but always felt like my sister was more my child than my sister, and I think firstborn children may understand that dynamic a little bit. And it came to a point that the last five years of her life were some of the best of her life. She had moved forward, moved out of, started back at college. She had found some health tools and had a good therapist and great friends. I share that because the chronic question so many people get is why? Why did someone take their life as if there's this one magic answer? And I love what Sheree said. It's a very complex issue. And I think it depends on the demographic we're talking about. My sister was 40 years old. And that's a different suicide path than even this last week. I had three notifications of teenagers, one as young as sixth grade. That's a different conversation because frontal cortex isn't developed and, and there's not a life view yet for a teenager. They make decisions very impulsively and then act them out. I think for me personally, I had already written my first book. It hadn't been published yet. It was submitted. In that time period is when we found Meg. And within a few months of her death, I was on the path to publishing the first book and rewrote what was in there to include her story. 
And so as I speak or write, it is always going to be a topic I bring up because there's such a complexity to it. And I agree again with Sheree, which I do often agree with Sheree because we are friends, but um, <laughs> that, I always agree with you. So yes, I, yes. I, that we have to address this in a different way. Seth is also a dear friend of mine, and I've recently gotten to connect with Megan that we are talking about a complex issue in very simplistic terms at times. And we're also not getting to the root of the hearts of men and women failing them and the, the, the distortion that comes with mental illness, the lack of hope and the exhaustion and fatigue that especially with my sister happened. She had tools and resources. She would rally and then she would sink and then she would rally for a period of time and then she would sink. And those periods of time would sometimes be years. And sometimes we don't know that. Sometimes we think it's a shock when Kate Spade takes her life or Robin Williams takes his life. But for families and loved ones, when you are a friend of someone that struggles, you can get fatigued in that process as well. And so it becomes, like you said in your intro, an epidemic, where then within schools, communities, churches, and families, the door opens. It is really hard to get that door closed. And so I love any chance I have to write, speak, podcast, put my shoulder next to someone else marching towards another conversation around this issue. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Hey, just for clarification, when you say mental illness in your family, what type of mental illness? I'm wondering if we're all talking about similar types of mental illness, if there's one, if it's the depression, the manic, and you know, what mental well, illness we It's interesting about? you would, that, would ask that. I have a book that just released this week, and one of the chapters is someone that deals with depression and anxiety. One of the chapters is bipolar, and one of the chapters in the book is about postpartum anxiety OCD disorder. And I posted a quote from the depression anxiety chapter and used the hashtag bipolar because my followers fall into all those categories. And it triggered someone that knew this person and said, I didn't know she had bipolar. So I think mental illness or mental health, I also like to use that word too, because mental health is more hopeful sounding. Mm -hmm. But I think illness gives us permission to say that it's something that needs our addressing and our care. So in my family, we have all but I think schizophrenia diagnosis is floating around with somebody. And if you were to push me, I guess I could probably name a, an uncle or an aunt that may be schizophrenic too. I don't know. But within my immediate family, I would say there's addiction, there's mental illness in general terms, which I think most people think of depression, anxiety, and that cycling. There's also a bipolar diagnosis. And there are some extended family members that deal with borderline personality disorder. Okay, so the next question, which I don't, this is probably something for everybody to talk about when we get to it, is why it seems to me that there is an increase of mental health issues than there ever has been before. I don't remember before the last 10 years even hearing it come up, hearing it be such a prevalent thing. And that could just be me. Maybe it's always been a topic, but it wasn't something that either people didn't talk about it as much or it wasn't something that was as prevalent. And I wonder just in my own inquisitive mind, is it something about our culture, something about our technology, something about what is the cause? What is? And I'm sure, you know, it's different for everybody. I'm sure there's a wide range. But when we look at the increase of the struggles with mental health and the resulting, you know, suicide that becomes a part of that, can we go to the root of is there something that we're doing in our current culture that increases that? 
Well, I think well, the I answer think, is it's just dis- disconnection. That's just my simple answer. It's disconnection. Yeah, I would say that all of us are biting at the bit maybe to comment on that. Interestingly enough, the statistics in Japan, Japan has a much higher rate of suicide, but they have no mental health, wellness, mental illness conversation happening, generally speaking. So I think we do have words now to put on things that we didn't have before. But ironically, just like Sheree just commented, I think we're more disconnected at at many levels. So back in the day, maybe where you would go outside and you would talk with your neighbor and you'd work in your field, there was probably more connection happening. But then when someone dealt with a real diagnosis, there weren't words around it and everyone just shipped that person off, right? So I don't know if we've traded one thing for another because we do have so many more diagnoses. And I think we have platforms where we're talking about these diagnoses now. I mean, even 10, 20 years ago, there wasn't an Instagram account you could follow where someone would post something that would validate what you experienced after giving birth to a baby, like Megan may comment on, or even Facebook groups that deal specifically with bipolar, depression, anxiety, OCD, you know, borderline personality disorder. And so we have those awarenesses now, but we're also, I think, a highly distracted and disconnected community. Thank you. And as we progress with the discussion, anyone else that wants to comment on that can. Thank you, Gainalyn. Megan, can you tell us your story? Sure. So I think my story starts with my role as a professional, being a therapist, being in the trenches with individuals day in and day out and hearing their stories and hearing their struggles with depression and anxiety and how that intertwines with those suicidal thoughts and it getting to that level. And these are everyday people, right? These are people, I think we there's sometimes a stigma and a certain stereotype that people often associate mental illness and those who are struggling with suicidal thoughts. But I found myself as a therapist talking to your everyday average person, your mom, your dad, your teenager who's outgoing and and has everything going for them, struggling with these things. And so that passion started early, realizing that this is an issue and these are challenges that affect everyone. And then it became more of a personal connection for me as my sister, Emily Dykes, after she had her fifth baby when she was 38, she experienced some trauma during that birth. And as a result, she experienced postpartum anxiety and PTSD. For about a year, she struggled with anxiety on a level that she had never before experienced in her life. It, for lack of a better phrase, kind of knocked our family, even myself, off of our socks. And she went through a year where she went through ups and downs, where we reached out to get help. And we had some disconnects there and some challenges there with getting her the right kind of help. And it was an uphill battle. And towards the end of that year, I got to the point where she was struggling with those suicidal thoughts to the point where she had a 10-day hospital stay. It was very traumatic and hard for her. It was hard for us as a family. We had never experienced anything on this level at all. After she was released from the hospital, she, like, as I've been listening to the others, kind of the same experiences where it's this very up and downhill roller coaster that you're going through and you think you've kind of made it through. And that's kind of what Emily experienced during this time. And especially after she was released from the hospital, she had a few good weeks and we kind of thought we were in the clear. We were still paying attention to it and and working through things. But that anxiety came to a head again for her a couple weeks afterwards to the point where she was struggling with those suicidal thoughts again. And She was with my dad one day and he was helping her and taking care of her and they were riding in the car on the freeway and she experienced a panic attack 
to the level that she had never experienced before. And she was so panicky and so scared that she tried to exit the vehicle and did. And as a result, she was an auto pedestrian accident that cost her her life. Even though the actual circumstances surrounding her death, we don't necessarily look at as a suicide in our family. We're certainly open about the fact that she struggled with those thoughts and struggled with this mental illness on a level that really changed our family. That was really a struggle that we wanted to be open about and in realizing that it could happen to anyone. And so shortly after her passing, we knew that we needed to share her story. We knew we needed to specifically target her story towards moms and families because Postpartum mood disorders are the most common complication of childbirth. And, you know, for my sister, Emily, as I've heard Cherie describe her sister and Gaina Lynn describe her sister, it, it was an experience, like I said, that was so contrary to who she was and the 38 years prior to her life that um, it even taught me as a lesson as a therapist working with people day in and day out, just how none of us are immune from these illnesses. And certainly, you know, we can relate to there been depression, anxiety, and different things in our family, but never on this level. And so we started the Emily Effect Foundation to raise this awareness, specifically to help moms. And really, our focus has been to eliminate shame around the conversation of mental illness. And so we've seen a lot of amazing changes and progress, specifically in postpartum and prenatal care for moms. And it's been amazing to be a part of that and amazing to hear how many people have reached out to us and said, me too, and thank you for sharing that that light and starting that conversation because when you do, it helps people to come out of the darkness and the corners that they're hiding in and realize that we, we all can relate on some level to these challenges. And so I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to be a part of that and to be a part of this conversation today. I love the work behind getting past the shame because that's, exactly. that's huge. Starting June 1st, the Love Your Story podcast will transition into a bi-weekly show for the summer. New episodes will come out every other Wednesday at the regular time, rather than every Wednesday, as we prepare for a dynamic fall season. Thanks for tuning in for each value-packed episode. Share the love. Now, back to the show. So this, again, I'm putting out to all of you and, you know, I don't know what's kosher to say and what's not. So if I say something that's offensive, I apologize up front. But what you're talking about with the idea of the ups and downs and not being themselves, that type of thing, what this makes me think of is there was a study and there was a gal that I interviewed in 2008 also, and she had committed, she had tried She had a suicide attempt and she was willing to get on the show and talk about it. And we discussed this a little bit on that episode. But there was, of all of the people, there was a study that I was reading of all of the people who tried to commit suicide and jump off, I believe it was the San Francisco Bridge. There have only been 12 people that survived in this article that I was reading. And of those 12 people, when they were interviewed, all 12 of them said that the minute that they left the bridge, that they were kind of released, that they regretted jumping and that there was a release of darkness around them. And of course, there's only those 12 that can report on that because the rest of them passed away. But my thought and from my background and understanding of 
I come from a religious background that believes in good and evil and believes in the prevalence of evil spirits and their effect that they have. And I personally wonder if part of the war between good and evil is that those the darker entities don't sort of target specific people and work on them and work on them and work on them. And possibly what we call mental illness is just a really intense spiritual attack. I mean, this is just my own personal theory that I'm thinking of and putting out there. And I I would like your comments on it. But with that information from those bridge jumpers and from my understanding of my spiritual beliefs and understanding, I think that it's a probability or a possibility. What are your thoughts on that? I have some thoughts. This is actually a a topic and realm that I have been very much immersed in thinking about and implementing in my practice over the last several months. I 100% agree with you in that, you know, however you view it within your spiritual realm, that there are influences out there that we're so connected mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually that when we talk about this being a complex issue, those are all players that are factors in this game, if you will. And so I've seen time and time again, over and over in my practice and in personal experiences, um, that there is that adversarial influence or whatever you want to call it. And basic psychology is that we feel based on how we think and perceive in our situations. And a lot of times, like you mentioned, when there is that vulnerability there because of a mental illness or because of traumatic experiences or whatever it may be, that is a key playing ground for these adversarial influences to then come in and influence our thoughts. And I think we often don't even realize that sometimes those thoughts, that whether they start out dark or just negative or small, that those are influenced by surroundings around us, whether it's adversarial or however you look at it. But it does get to that point where I don't think people are recognizing that it is an influence outside of themselves. And then it feeds on those other factors with mental illness. And it is playing a major part in taking people to that point, because that's ultimately what those influences want from us, right? That that someone taking their life and the pain that that causes families and the misery that they experience getting to that point is their purpose. And so we have to realize that that's being a factor here, because I've seen in my work with people that when they understand that, that they, they can then become empowered. And when they realize that sometimes those thoughts and those feelings are something coming from something outside of themselves, mm-hmm. that gives them the, the opportunity and the power to take control over that and to do something with that and to separate themselves from that. And that's very empowering and promotes a lot of healing. It's totally empowering because if you, you know, a lot of times you have to know who the enemy is in order to fight. And if the enemy and in this case, we're talking about good versus evil or adversarial forces has control and a weapon that he's using that we're not even aware of. It's very hard to combat that. And we often think that the voices in our heads and the things that we think and you know all of those stories we're telling ourselves inside our head, the go-to place is that that's just us, that that's fact, that we've had experiences, life experiences and things told to us. And you know this is how we perceive life and we're sorting through it logically and emotionally. When in reality, all of those stories are very fluid creations that come from 
a lot of different voices, whether it's cultural or religion or gender-based or societal-based, what you know, all kinds of spaces that those are formed from. And none of them necessarily are factual, but they're just what we think. And so we give that voice in our head a lot of credit for being legitimate. But if that voice in our head is adversarial and it's constantly negative and it's constantly bringing us down, to understand that it's potentially something and someone or someone's that we are fighting against, I think, gives us a greater understanding of how to stand up and win. It's not just ourself. It's not just fact. It's something that we actually need to do battle with. Yeah, I completely agree. Well said. Do any of the rest of you have thoughts on that real quickly? I'll just speak to something else that compounds the issue is that the research I've done with biochemistry and epigenetics and neurogenesis and all that kind of stuff. All of us who are walking the earth right now are the living benefactors of all the emotional residue that was not cleared in the previous generations. Sometimes it skips five generations and shows up. But essentially, I think this also speaks to your first issue where you had asked, what is it about right now? Or why are more people more mentally ill? We're, We're ramping up on the earth and both spiritually, physically, and emotionally, and collectively as the collective unconscious, and therefore all of the stuff that has not been cleared within family lines to this point is now expressing and expressing quite pronounced. So you have like autism on the, you know, a 1500% increase in autism and things on the developmental spectrum, ADHD, mental illness spikes. I mean, mental illness has always had a stigma, so it's always been underreported, but it's still on the rise. It's a plague, depression, anxiety, all of that kind of stuff. And suicidality is on the rise. I mean, none of those levels are (laughs) plateauing. So for me, what I see is, yes, there are adversarial entities that are at play. We're like an all-you-can-eat buffet to them, but to our dark thoughts and things that were going on with us. But at the same time, there are things in us, in our DNA that, and this you could also take another spiritual approach just and say that the souls that are incarnating right now have a very specific mission in their bodies to clear out the things that have not been cleared generationally to this point. So I think it's a powerful work we're doing in our bodies. Unfortunately, for some people, they don't get the perspective, the tools, the skills, or the validation to stay in their body and keep the work getting done. And they choose to leave. Wow, that is super interesting. Thank you, Cherie. That was the Golden Gate Bridge that you're referencing. And that study, you referenced that they thought a lot the dark release and then the regret. And I imagine often in what Cherie says, I say every time I speak, people to stay in their bodies because it is a war. And I appreciate that you've opened the conversation into this direction. You know, it was war happening around my sister during those last few days. It got very but I think it's important. You know, I literally woke up this morning to messages from someone that is struggling, the side that heard me speak, and is thinking in moms that they will stop the pain if they stop living now in this place. And I think regardless of what your spiritual understandings are or your religious beliefs, I love what Megan said is that you have a sensitivity if you do have a diagnosis to maybe this war that's happening around you. But if you are listening to the podcast and you don't have that sense of 
another side of the veil or dark entities or whatever, or if you're listening to this and it's triggering you because you're hearing that we're saying that mental illness is something else than maybe what you've learned it is, I would just say to you, you don't know where you're going. And so there's a lot about this crisis intervention that I think is important to say to someone that is struggling and has been struggling and gets tired. Those people that jumped off that bridge regretted it. And that's what I think we need to emphasize is that validation, like Sheree said, is so important. But to say to someone, you know, please just keep going in their minds, they're thinking, I want the pain to stop. And if you take that study further, those that did survive report all this well-being and miracles and joy in their life that they never thought they would ever experience. And that's the message I think that's important to say. And I know Seth needs to share his story, but because he is like adopted brother for me, the good that he has done to me is always an example that I love to use is that if you can push through that, stop assuming that leaving this life, and that's a whole nother podcast about what life is like after this life. But I love what Shree said, we're here for a journey and an experience and a battle and lessons to be learned and things to progress towards. And it's important we give people tools so that they know who their the enemy is. And sometimes it is your own thoughts. But stop assuming that when you stop this pain, pain is going to stop. I have come to know in my own experience in the last five years that my sister is very aware of the grief that was left behind. And she is continuing to grow and progress and change because that's my faith belief, right? But this body that you have is like the mouse that has the batteries starting to go down. You know that feeling when your battery in your mouse isn't working and you're trying to get the arrow on the computer to move over and it's just not moving and you are trying to get it to move and you realize the battery's dead and you got to change. Maybe no one understands that analogy, but the other day I had that happen and I realized that's why our bodies are a gift. They're the house, the mouse for this arrow of our spirit. And without it, we're slowed down in some ways. And so if anyone's listening to this podcast thinking like, I just want the pain to stop and the next life sounds way better than what I've been doing the last 40 years here, I want you to look back at that study and realize those that jumped regretted it because there was so much joy that was coming. They couldn't see it in the dark spots they were in. And that's what I hope people know because the people I've talked to that have attempted and survived have blessed the world in magnificent ways. And it's a loss to all of us every time someone takes their life. Well said, Gainalyn. Thank you. And that transitions us beautifully over to Seth, who has a very different story than we've heard so far. Seth, will you share your story, please? Sure. I always hesitate to share my story because in part, you know, it's, I guess, what you would consider a a survival or a success story. I'm like, I lived as the result of people who intervened, but I have also heard innumerable stories of parents, of of siblings, of friends and family who did absolutely everything that they could do to help their loved one and they didn't make it. There's always going to be a part of me that hesitates to share my story because somebody else, and I know Gaina Lynn and I have talked about this extensively, somebody else on the other side of my story is, is having an experience or had an experience where they did everything they could do and their loved one didn't make it. And I really love working with Galen because she's able to help illustrate and talk about that other aspect of this conversation. But 
in my case, my story is that I struggled throughout my life and I still struggle with chronic bouts of depression. And I think the most severe it has been, there, there have been about three or four times when it's been really intense. And, and, and one of those instances was in my early 20s. And I just couldn't cope with the pain. I thought that this pain and, and the emotional mental distress that I was feeling, I, I thought that was me. That, that was my own mind. That was who I was. It represented me. The thoughts that depression was telling me, well, this is who I am and this is what I will go on experiencing for the rest of my life. And I don't want this anymore. And it was affecting everything. I mean, every aspect of my entire life, I felt like I couldn't make any good decisions or any decisions I made, you know, things would just wilt and rot and I would destroy things and, and I wasn't any good. And so things sort of came to a head and I tried to take my life. And when I was in the hospital, I remember seeing my brother, Sean, and my brother, Sean, you really have to know, this is critical to the story, is that he is not a nice <laughs> person. <laughs> He's not a, a cuddly, warm, friendly person. That's not who he is. And this is important because I think of him like a teddy bear, but dipped in cement. There is a soft part of him that's that's in there, but it's really deep inside of that cement. And that's important because I remember seeing him briefly. I opened my eyes at the hospital. I remember seeing him and just these tears were just pouring down his face as he was watching over me at the hospital. And then later, he helped me home from the hospital. And I was, I was really despondent. I was sort of just robotic, just sort of going through the motions of whatever people would say. It's just a blur at the hospital. And I got home and I got into my bed and he laid down next to me and I, I sort of just passed out again. I fell asleep in the bed and it was hours later, I, I woke up and he was still there. And I thought, well, this is weird for a number of reasons. He's awake, you know, he's just been laying there. And I said, you know, Sean, you can go home now. And, and he was very quiet for a while. And he said, you know, Seth, I, I almost lost my brother. So I'm not gonna go anywhere for a while. And that, that was a turning point in, in many ways. It sort of brought me outside of myself and I, I realized that the pain I was experiencing was not my own. Like I was not experiencing it by myself, that other people were experiencing pain in a loving way on my behalf. They were trying to share that burden and carry me through it. And that was like a little a light in the wilderness of my own wilderness. And it helped lead me out. But I, I want to emphatically state that my my suicide attempt did not improve my life. You know, part of sharing this story is that I think some people mistakenly believe, oh, well, he tried to take his life and then he had people rally around him and his life dramatically improved after that. And I, I don't want people, anyone to walk away with that impression. My life was dramatically worse after my suicide attempt. I had health issues. I had challenges associated with that with people having there was rumors about me. I had to leave the state and get a different job outside of the state in order to recover. Things were dramatically, emphatically different and worse because of my suicide attempt. And I would never recommend that as, as a way of escaping pain. But I did learn from that experience that my these people outside of me, my family and my friends, they really did care and they really did love me and that my life had some sort of value, which was, it, it was such a foreign concept to me at the time. I just thought, well, I've been telling myself for years that I'm worthless, you know, and you guys, someone outside of me, you, you think that I have worth and it, it just, a little light started to glimmer in the darkness, right? And 
it was a long road to recovery. I mean, I saw a therapist. I did take some medication for a time. And when the doctor recommended it, I stopped taking the medication. And I, I went out and sought different opportunities and, and really grew outside of myself. And it was a long recovery, but it, I came to a place where I've learned a lot of skills and a lot of ways to manage the depression because it does come back. And it comes back as intense as it has in the past. But I've set up these red flags. I know what I'm feeling. I talk to my wife. I tell her, okay, here's where we are right now. I'm, I'm getting to that point. Here's what I need to do. And I know certain things and mechanisms to help me prevent you know, crossing into the red zone. And since then, as part of what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm a major advocate for suicide prevention. And, and I'll just share one very brief experience as part of this introduction to the work that I'm doing is I didn't want to be involved in suicide prevention to the extent that I am. I don't want to be seen as a poster child for this. You know, I, at least I didn't. And it wasn't until my daughter was born. She was born on the darkest day of the year. So it was December. And I remember holding her for the first time. This was my first child. I was holding her. I, I didn't even know how to pick her up. I, I had to ask the nurse. I was like, how do you pick up a baby? <laughs> she said, she said, well, you, you know, you put one hand underneath and you put the other hand underneath and then you lift her towards your body. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. So I picked her up and it was just this frail, tiny little thing that just weighed so little. I mean, it was insignificant to anybody else, you know, just this weight, you know, and I remember she opened up her eyes and there was this light in there. And I remember thinking, I am so grateful that I didn't miss this. That experience of her being born on the darkest day of the year, this, this little light that came into the world, came into my world, and an opportunity I almost missed changed me. It changed the direction of my life and what I wanted to do. And I realized there are so many other people out there who are struggling in the darkness and think that their lives aren't worth anything. And yet I know, I know after looking into those eyes for the first time, that little light of this human being who, who hadn't really contributed anything to the world lately, you know, or when she was born and, and she'd just come in and, and hadn't done anything except open her eyes. And I just saw this infinite worth inside of her and it just changed everything for me. And I realized anybody who's struggling out there with suicidal thoughts or feelings, your life is more infinitely beautiful and more full of worth than you could possibly imagine. And there is so much more ahead of you. I absolutely love that. And it wraps around to what you were saying before about how for years you'd been telling yourself that you were worthless and, and, you know, what was the point? And, and that brings me back to the conversation that we were having earlier with Sheree and Gaina Lynn, which is, I don't think those voices that are telling all of us that we're worthless, that that internal story that goes on, that is constantly creating fear and self-loathing and worthlessness. I don't think that's us. I just don't. I think it's the adversary trying to fight against exactly what you saw in your baby daughter, which is the infinite worth, the infinite beauty, the infinite potential, the preciousness of every human soul. And it is in direct confrontation of that, that that voice 
comes over and over to tell us how worthless we are to create a sense of hopelessness and to keep us small and to keep us fearful. That's where I think the battle is. Well, and I'll tell you something that's really interesting that ties into to everything that, that people have been saying is in terms of, of spirituality and, and adversaries and God and spirituality being part of this discussion, I absolutely believe that it is, that it's a key component because it's so interesting to me how the natural man, the natural inclination of men and women is to isolate. When you're in pain, you isolate yourself. So you take that wound and you hold it close to you. Or if it's an emotional wound, you start building up walls and you isolate yourselves. You push other people away. That is what the natural man does. The natural man or woman pushes away from other people, isolates, cuts off connections, and really withdraws inside of him or herself. God, on the other hand, asks us to do the very thing that's going to help us and heal us on a spiritual level, obviously, but also on a physical, emotional, mental level. It's fascinating how God asks us to do the very thing that's going to help us, which is love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens. I mean, God is telling us to do the thing that is actually going to help us heal and recover and that to me is, is an interesting way of evidencing the existence of God is that if we were all on our own, we would self-destruct. But as soon as we bring God into this, God elevates us to a higher way of living. Thank you, Seth. Thank you. We're going to end the first part of this discussion, part one of the suicide panel, on this note. I love what Seth has said about how God has provided for us the answers to the questions. And the answers to the questions are when we follow the guidance that God has provided for us, we can actually find our way out of these spaces. And sometimes our way out looks very different than what we might expect. Sometimes it's looking beyond ourselves. Despite the fact that this entire first section of it has consisted mostly of the introduction of the panel members, we've also had really powerful discussion and ideas and thoughts come up around it. Please join us next week for part two of the suicide panel as we transition into the actual questions and find out what these people have to say about it, their insights and their thoughts as they have worked and discussed and contemplated on this topic of suicide, the role it's played in their lives, the role it plays in our society, the things that they know and understand about it, and as they share those insights with us. As always, don't forget that you can access the Love Your Story podcast website at loveyourstorypodcast.com. You can access all the tools for helping you to love your story, to create your best life story on purpose, and you can access all the 130 plus episodes that I have recorded to date. Some fantastic tools for empowerment and inspiration on a daily basis. Have a great week out there creating your best life story on purpose with intention and share the love. Share your favorite episode with somebody who might need it today. <laughs>